in a letter to former president Dwight D. Eisenhower reportedly said that because she was unmarried, despite being physically attractive, she was probably a communist. I mean, A plus B definitely equals communist there. Yeah, C (laughs) C for communist. A plus B equals C. Also, I'm looking at a picture of Rachel Carson in 1940. Yeah, smoke show. She's a dime piece. I don't know that she was a smoke show. She was, she's a little she, dime yeah. piece. She, she's a little demi demigod dime piece. I mean, she's cute. I don't know that she's communist hot. <laughs> hey, everyone, and welcome to Wiki University, a podcast that dives down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia to explore the sum of all human knowledge. I'm Kyle Berseth, your host and dean of this fine institution, and as always, I'm joined by our summa cum laude, Jason Nunez. If this is your first time at WikiU, thanks for tuning in. Jason and I are comedians, and this is a podcast that combines learning and comedy, so it's for dumb people and smart people alike. In every episode, Jason and I get together over Zoom and attempt to link two very different topics across Wikipedia so you never know what we're going to cover. Recently, we got accused of not covering enough women on the podcast, so this week, we're fully overcompensating by taking a girl's trip. We'll be going from the pages of Rachel Carson's influential environmental science book, Silent Spring, to the lovely shores of Malibu where we'll study the Streisand effect, and finally we'll make our way to the powerful, deep, earthy voice of Etta James. Yeah, so, okay, my topic for today is Etta James, um, and let me tell you why I picked her, because I've been actually been listening to some, been listening to a lot of Rihanna. Okay. But I started listening to Rihanna's song, uh, Love um, Love on the Brain, I believe, Love on the Brain. Beautiful, soulful, soulful uh, tune that mm-hmm. I've just been listening over and over, and I was just uh, researching more songs, and someone had commented, like, oh, Rihanna's really got her... Uh, Etta James vibes going with this song, right? And so that made me like, oh, well, I love this song, and you're telling me that this uh, that Etta James has that soulfulness that I'm looking for, an OG soulfulness that I'm. You're always looking for that soulfulness, always, baby, especially when it comes to music. So yeah, so I got interested in her, and I and I looked her up, and I started listening to some of her songs, and you know, obviously some I've heard that I just didn't know. Uh, that it was uh, Etta James, but mm-hmm. uh, and some knew that I'm just discovering, and uh, just beautiful, beautiful, soulful singing voice, and uh, it really, it really perked me up. It really like made me. Mm. I feel like no producer is ever like that was too soulful. Hey, tone down, tone down the soul. Tone down the soulfulness. <laughs> tone down the soul. All right, there. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, too much from the heart. <laughs> just make it from your throat. <laughs> Do you even know how to sing? You go from your throat, okay? Everything comes from the throat. All right. Well, I think we should end on Etta James. On soul? Yeah. I would consider her like a heavy hitter in music. Mm-hmm. She's Definitely. got a, one of the lasting 
songs of all time. For sure. And we can start with my topic. My topic is a book called Silent Spring. We're reading about reading. This is just, this is my forte. Perfect. Reading is definitely not my forte. But it is a, I think it's a, an important book in regards to climate change. And we've never done anything literature related on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it stands for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, what exactly, got, first off, what made you choose that topic? Like, So I studied landscape architecture in college and we had to read part of it. We get it, you went to college, all right. And I had to read part of the book, like excerpts from the book for a class. We didn't have to read the whole book. Wait, was it because you were white that they were like, you don't have to read the whole book. You can just like read snippets. But everybody else had to read the whole book. Yes. Nice. That's legit. So anyway, uh, you know, landscape (laughs) architecture, it's very environmentally related. So it was important that we read this part of this book. I see. (laughs) (laughs) Not the whole thing. It's not that important. It was important that we got the gist of the book. Right, right. (laughs) So, all right, let's dive into it. This is Silent Spring. Silent Spring is an environmental science book by Rachel Carson. The book was published on September 27, 1962, documenting the adverse environmental effects caused by the indiscriminate use of pesticides. Carson accused the chemical industry of spreading disinformation and public officials of accepting the industry's marketing claims. Real quick, what's the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Is that, I guess is that just giving the wrong information on purpose? Well, I can click on disinformation real quick here. Disinformation is false or misleading information that is spread deliberately to deceive. Gotcha. Okay, figure it out. See? See what my brain did there? It's a subset of misinformation. Misinformation is false or inaccurate information that is communicated regardless of the intention. So misinformation is like spreading fake articles on Facebook. Yeah, sorry about without that. Without knowing, without like fact checking it. You're just like, here's the information. Disinformation is like what Russia is doing with spreading fake articles. Allegedly. On Facebook. Allegedly. I mean, we didn't go to we didn't get our law degree, but it's always safe to say allegedly, Kyle. True. True. Okay. Starting in the 1950s, Carson had focused her attention on environmental conservation, especially environmental problems that she believed were caused by synthetic pesticides. The result of her research was Silent Spring, the book, which brought environmental concerns to the American public. The book was met with fierce opposition by chemical companies, but owing to (laughs) public opinion, it brought about numerous changes. It spurred a reversal in the United States national pesticide policy, led to a nationwide ban on DDT for agricultural uses, and helped to inspire an environmental movement that led to the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So it's an important book. I mean, the U.S. EPA was created thanks in part to this book. That's crazy. I didn't know books can be important like that. That's, man. This is the only book that has ever had an impact. That's crazy. And it's it's saving lives. Not, I mean, not human lives, but animal lives, I guess. (laughs) Remember, like, seeing old videos ever of pesticides just being shot out of planes over cornfields? Crops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think, like, that's good to breathe in for humans either. 
<laughs> yeah, but it's good to eat. It gives the it gives the maize the maize some flavor. You know, it gives the corn some flavor. What? What? What's in this? Oh, that's just poison. Hmm. <laughs> the overarching theme of Silent Spring is the powerful and often negative effect humans have on the natural world. Carson's main argument is that pesticides have detrimental effects on the environment. She says these are more properly termed biocides because their effects are rarely limited to the target pests. DDT is a prime example, but other DDT. synthetic pesticides, many of which are subject to bioaccumulation, are scrutinized. Carson accuses the chemical industry of intentionally spreading disinformation and public officials of accepting industry claims uncritically. Most of the book is devoted to pesticides' effects on natural ecosystems, but four chapters detail cases of human pesticide poisoning, cancer, and other illnesses attributed to pesticides. Every time you say Carson, I just think of, like, uh, Carson, and it's just like, uh, these uh, pesticides, weird, wild stuff. These carcinogens are killing me. <laughs> he was also... <laughs> Unknown heavy smoker. <laughs> Huge heavy. In her book, Carson predicts increased consequences in the future, especially since targeted pests may develop resistance to pesticides and weakened ecosystems fall prey to unanticipated invasive species. The book closes with a call for bio... Biotic... Biotic? Ah. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I took ESL, by the way, five years. <laughs> FYI. I'm an idiot. The book closes <laughs> with a call for a biotic approach to pest control as an alternative to chemical pesticides. Right, right. You know that thing where it's like you got a rat problem, you get the cat, and then you get the cat, you have too many cats, and then you get, yeah, yeah. Get exactly. the dog. Get the dog, exactly. And then you shoot the dog. Then you got to get Bob Barker in there. He's out there <laughs> shooting dogs left and right, which he was known for. Now it's Drew Carey. Drew Carey's out there shooting shooting up a storm. All right, so in the weeks before the September 27th, 1962 publication, there was a strong opposition to Silent Spring from the chemical industry. DuPont, a major manufacturer of DDT and 2,4-D, which I think DDT. is another pesticide, Ooh. And Veliscol Chemical Company, the only manufacturer of chlordane and hept... Oh, boy, this is tough when I got to pronounce science words. <laughs> DuPont compiled an extensive report on the book's press coverage and estimated impact on public opinion. DuPont was huge where I grew up in Delaware, so I probably drank some of these pesticides growing up. I feel like they're still huge. I see those big uh, trucks with DuPont on the side still. I don't know if they're still dumping all the pesticides everywhere, but I'm pretty sure they are probably figuring it out. Chemical companies and associated organizations produce brochures and articles promoting and defending pesticide use. However, Carson's and the publisher's lawyers were confident in the vetting process Silent Spring had undergone. Oh, boy. This is bad. Others attacked Carson's personal character and scientific credentials, her training being in marine biology rather than biochemistry. White Stevens, I don't know who, let's see, he's a biochemist, called her a quote-unquote 
a fanatic defender of the cult of the balance of nature, while former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Ezra Taft Benson, in a letter to former President Dwight D. Eisenhower, reportedly said that because she was unmarried, despite being physically attractive, she was probably a communist. I mean, A plus B definitely equals communist there. Yeah, C (laughs) for communist. A plus B equals C. (laughs) Right. Classic trustworthy company Monsanto published 5,000 copies of a parody called The Desolate Year, which projected a world of famine and disease caused by banning pesticides. That's insane. The academic community, including prominent Defenders such as H.J. Mueller. Some Ooh, H.J. I wouldn't mind an H.J. about now. <laughs> I bet you he. I bet you like an H.J. comes from his name. Like he was the first one. Okay, where were we? <laughs> the chemical industry campaign was counterproductive because the controversy increased public awareness of the potential dangers of pesticide. An early example of the Streisand effect. Pesticide. I want to go to the Streisand effect, but... Barbs? Is that Barbs? I bet it's named after Babs. Wait, real quick. Why is it Babs and not Barbs? I don't know why they called him Babs. Barbara is long for Babs. <laughs> I suppose so. Here's the impact that it had. Carson's work had a powerful impact on the environmental movement. Silent Spring became a rallying point for the new social movement in the 1960s, according to environmental engineer and Carson scholar H. Patricia Hines, Silent Spring altered the balance of power in the world. No one since would be able to sell pollution as the necessary underside of progress so easily or uncritically. Carson's work and the activism it inspired are partly responsible for the deep ecology movement and the strength of the grassroots movement since the 1960s. It was also influential on the rise of ecofeminism and on many feminist scientists. I'm also curious about ecofeminism. Ecofeminism. Carson's most direct legacy in the environmental movement was the campaign to ban the use of DDT in the United States and related efforts to ban or limit its use throughout the world. The 1967 formation of the Environmental Defense Fund was the first major milestone in the campaign against DDT. DDT. Uh, The creation of the Environmental Protection Agency by the Nixon administration in 1970 addressed another concern that Carson had written about. Until then, the USDA was responsible both for regulating pesticides and promoting the concerns of the agricultural industry. Carson saw this as a conflict of interest since the agency was not responsible for effects on wildlife or other environmental concerns beyond farm policy. Wait, so you're saying uh, Nixon had like was pro-anti... The Nixon administration set up the Environmental Protection Agency. But still, she had a problem with it because it didn't really affect what? No, no, she had a problem with prior to that. The gotcha. USDA, U.S. Food um, no, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, oh, regulated pesticides and also promoted the concerns of the agricultural industry who wanted pesticides because it made it easier to grow crops. Right, right. They were also in charge of the effects on wildlife and the environment, which they didn't care about. They just cared about money. So anyway, the reason 
it's called Silent Spring. I don't think we got to it. But it's because all the birds were dying and there was no chirping. Mm, okay. So it's a silent spring. There's no chir- there's no morning there's no morning glory out there chirping chirping it up. There the birds are chirping, the squirrels are banging, the rabbits are fucking and uh this year nothing. With the DDT, nothing. That's insane. How it's usually the birds that get affected first when it comes to all these It's the canary in the DDT mine. Yeah. You mentioned didn't you mention something about birds right now like what's happening the birds right now or like this story about the I didn't mention it on the podcast but yeah with the wildfires up in Oregon they hopped on their migratory pattern early or they tried to just escape yeah. they evacuated much like humans were and they flew down to New Mexico where you are right yeah. now and all these birds were just showing up dead in New Mexico because they weren't ready for this long journey like they hadn't they didn't eat they just evacuated and they they were exhausted they didn't have time to pack their beaks up and fucking get out let me put my good flying beak on (laughs) yeah but like I was saying I mean yeah it it always seems to be like the birds are like the first ones like you know why I think that is I think you see the impact on birds because there's a lot of them and then when there's not a lot of them you see a major impact. You take notice. And they can die pretty quickly, like when something like that happens. Like because whole populations because get Because they travel in packs and stuff like that, yeah. Huh. Anyway, let's go to a new topic here. We could go to ecofeminism. I am curious about the Streisand effect. I'm definitely curious about that, more so than the ecofeminism, but that one's also interesting too. But I want to know what the Streisand thing is. Also, I'm looking at a picture of Rachel Carson in 1940. Yeah, smoke show. She's a dime piece. I don't know that she was a smoke show. She was she's a little she, dime yeah. piece. She, I don't know about that. She's a little demi demigod dime piece. I mean, she's cute. She's cute, but like, you know, I, I don't know that she's communist hot. <laughs> right, right. I bet she had many suitors. Whether she wanted them or not. It was the 40s, baby. (laughs) Anything goes. (laughs) Oh, boy. That's the 40s motto. (laughs) 1940s. Anything goes. Hell yeah. Post-World War II. Anything goes after that. We were living the life. Freedom. The taste of freedom has never tasted so good. (laughs) All right. Here we go. I went to the Streisand effect. The Streis, we covered the Flutie effect in the past. Yes. Do you want to remind the listeners what the Flutie effect was? That, well, they should go back and listen, but, you know, do hey, don't skip classes here at WikiU. Right. But the Flutie effect, for those who need the cliff notes, <laughs> is when Doug Flutie won a championship for Boston College in the 80s and enrollment went up. And so anytime a football team or sports team does well and gets a lot of national attention at a college, generally enrollment goes up at that school. And that's the Flutie effect. We saw it take place locally over at George Mason when they went to the Final Four. Yes, yes, yes. Ah, someone was listening during that episode. Ah, interesting. I took notes. All right, the Streisand effect is a social phenomenon that occurs when an attempt to hide, remove, or censor information has the unintended consequences of further publicizing that information, often via the internet. It is named after American entertainer Barbara Streisand, 
whose attempt to suppress the California Coastal Records Project's photograph of her residence in Malibu, California, taken to document California coastal erosion, inadvertently drew further attention to it in 2003. Huh, so so can we dive deeper into that? What exactly? Yeah, let's figure out what the what the hell. Yeah, so she tried to co- maybe not her but her people or something try to cover up the fact that what? Here we go. The term alluded to Barbara Streisand, who in 2003 had sued photographer Kenneth Alderman and Pictopia.com, I wonder if that's still a website, for violation of privacy. The U.S. $50 million lawsuit endeavored to remove an aerial photograph of Streisand's mansion from the publicly available collection of 12,000 California coastline photographs. Edelman photographed the beachfront property to document coastal erosion as part of the California Coastal Records Project, which was intended to influence government policymakers. Before Streisand filed her lawsuit, quote-unquote image 3850 had been downloaded from Alderman's website only six times. Two of those downloads were by Streisand's attorneys. As a result of the case, public knowledge of the picture increased greatly. More than 420,000 people visited the site over the following month. Wow. The lawsuit was dismissed, and Streisand was ordered to pay his legal fees, which amounted to $155,000. So, anyway, she's like, I don't want pictures of my house up there. And they were like, yeah, well, you just, you're a publicity magnet. Right. So that's right. the Streisand effect. That's interesting. Yeah, no, that's uh, that makes sense when people try to, like... Yeah, like it's not a big deal until you yourself make it into a big deal. Exactly. Here's another example in politics. A relative of yours. In March 2019, California Representative Devin Nunez filed a defamation lawsuit against Twitter and three users for $250 million in damages. These are outrageous. Yeah, man. Fuck. One user named in the lawsuit the parody account at Devin Gow had 1,200 followers before the lawsuit. The number of followers of at Devin Cal soon jumped to 600,000 followers. Also, Nunez is spelled different than your Nunez. Like with an S or something stupid like that? Yeah, Gross. something dumb like that. That's so dumb. And he's from California as well? Dude, California, very Fucking litigious. Fucking greedy-ass people. We should probably move off of this topic here. It's interesting. That's, that's yeah. I didn't know it was named after her. Like, I knew of... The phenomenon. I didn't even know of the Streisand effect. I mean, I know that like happens. Just kind of like you know, you don't like even if I like I don't know think I said something wrong on on Wiki U. I don't know stage podcast whatever it may be. It's just like don't make a big deal about it. like why it's it's like you know the more pushback, the more you backpedal on something, the more it's gonna be like people will get to know why is he backpedaling? Why is this trying to you know all these things that you're trying to do? It's like. They'll find so all the worst things that you've said rather than just enjoying that one thing. And have a supercut of uh, all the stuff that I said, yeah. <laughs> what do you want to go to? We could take a trip to Malibu, California. I was just there Ooh. yesterday. Ooh, you were? Yeah. I love the beach. Let's get a little beachside property first, and then we'll get out of California. Cause... I fell asleep on the beach in Malibu. All these people were surfing, Ooh. which is like surfing 
It's my greatest fear. As you know, I can't yes. swim. Yes. And I'm just watching these people try to ride these waves in almost, I don't know, 75% of the time, it involves them just falling into the depths of the ocean. Were they pretty big waves the other day? They were pretty pretty solid waves. Look, I don't mind yeah. I don't mind the beach at all, but uh yeah, something about water like scares me. Like the like the depth of water it's too big. scares me for sure. Like I remember going to is it the Smithsonian, the Natural History Museum or somewhere where they have like the section of just like underwater like shit? That's what it's called at the Smithsonian. <laughs> Uh, that, oh, that wing over there, that's underwater shit. That's the underwater shit wing. Oh, over there, that's space shit. Yeah. (laughs) I just remember as a kid walking into that and, like, they have these giant murals of, like, these whales and stuff. And, like, they're gigantic. And it's, like, so creepy to me. It's, like, I don't want to imagine something that gigantic next to me it's very like scary to me but in terms of like i love i'll go to the water i'll go to the pool i can swim i'll go to the beach yeah yeah stop bragging here we go we're on malibu california malibu is a beach city in western los angeles county california situated about 30 miles west of downtown los angeles it is known for its mediterranean climate and its 21 mile strip of the malibu coast incorporated in 1991 into the city of malibu The exclusive Malibu colony has been historically home to Hollywood celebrities. People in the entertainment industry and other affluent residents live throughout the city, yet many residents are middle class. Most Malibu residents live from a half mile to within a few hundred yards of the Pacific Coast Highway, which traverses the city with some residents living up to a mile from the beach up the narrow canyons, which... the Canyons are beautiful, too. Well, I was thinking you mentioned like it said, like, you know, Hollywood entertainment. Maybe we find a little something there with the, you know, singer songwriter to get to Etta James. Yeah, probably shouldn't be too hard at all. Did you say too hard? Nicknamed the boo (laughs) by surfers and local going out to the boo, bro. Catch some catch some gnarly waves. The boo. Nicknamed the boo by surfers and locals. Beaches along the Malibu coast include Topanga Beach, Big Rock Beach, Las Flores Beach, La Costa Beach, surfs. You know, there's a bunch of beaches. Point Doom Beach, blah, 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 blah. It's known for their beaches. Malibu Barbie loved it. So this is a big article. There's the history, uh, which was the Malibu colony. Let me guess. The history starts at white history. <laughs> I was going to say it's funny that it's called a colony. Malibu colony was one of the first areas with private homes after Malibu was opened to development in 1926 by May Ring. May Ring allowed prominent Hollywood movie stars to build vacation homes in the colony as a defensive public relations wedge against the Union Pacific from taking her property under eminent domain, which we covered on the Shenandoah episode, for a coastal train route. The action successfully forced the Union Pacific to route their northbound line inland, then return to the coast in Ventura. That's great. She got rich Hollywood movie stars to build house vacation homes, and it prevented the train from ruining the beach. Instead, they basically have a private beach. So, I don't know. It's kind of give and take. Wait, so there would be a train where? Like, going up north from the beach? Right along the coast. Oh, on on beachside? 
the Pacific Coast Highway runs along the beach, and it services all those homes. So I'm guessing it would have run along the beach. Right, it would have ruined that trip and because you'd be going north and you take a look at the left and it's like the train and, just and tracks. industry. That has no place. That has no place in the beach. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't want the train at the beach. It's hard to imagine that too. Like it just doesn't go together. When you think train, railroads, you don't think like water. Yeah, but I think a lot of times it's it's easy to there's not a lot of geography to go over because it flattens out gotcha. once you get down by the shoreline. Right. So it's like, let's build here. Instead of carving through a mountain. Right. And that's why you see a lot of trains kind of down by rivers a lot of times. Okay. I'm guessing that's why, because it usually is the low point and it and the river's already carving through. Long known as a popular private enclave for wealthy celebrities, the Malibu Colony today is a gated community with multi-million dollar homes on small lots. The colony has views of the Pacific Ocean with coastline views stretching from Santa Monica to Rancho's Palos Verdes to the south and the bluffs of Point Doom to the north. Maybe we should go to notable residents, notable residents, notable residents. residents. All right. The following is a list of people who were born in or have been residents of or otherwise closely associated with the American city of Malibu, California. The listed people are Americans unless otherwise noted. I don't want to see anything noted. I want pure American. Jason. We got a million people here. Anybody with some soul? Uh, Mel Gibson, 1985 Sexiest Man Alive. That's right. That's right. His face is a lethal weapon. Leonardo DiCaprio, Danny DeVito, Giada De Laurentiis, Lena Del Rey. She's in music. Miley Cyrus. She's in music. You want to go to Lana Del Rey? Yeah. Her real name is... Elizabeth Woolridge Grant. She was born in 1985, and she's known by her stage name, Lana Del Rey, is an American singer-songwriter. Her music is noted for its stylized, cinematic quality, themes of sadness, tragic romance, glamour. She's also known for her references to pop culture, particularly 1950s and 1960s Americana. I don't know that Etta James is Americana. She's soul. Mm-hmm. Definitely soul. Mm. But there's definitely, I'm sure Lana's been inspired, uh, one of her inspirations, I feel Maybe like. Maybe there's influences. Yeah. Musical style and influences. Here we go. Ooh, okay. All right, all right, all right. Now we're cooking with grease or fire. Cooking with high heat, baby. Delray sites. A wide array of musical artists as influences, including numerous pop, jazz, and blues performers from the mid-20th century, such as Andrew Lloyd Webber, Frank Sinatra, Nina Simone, Billie Holiday, Bobby Vinton, The Crystals, and Miles Davis. Mm. Quote-unquote, I really just like the masters of every genre, she told BBC Radio presenter Joe Wiley in uh, 2012, specifically naming Nirvana, Bob Dylan, Frank Sinatra, and Elvis Presley. This is interesting. I like hearing about artists like this. I don't, I don't love Lana Del Rey's music. I like a few songs here and there, but I also haven't listened to a ton of it. Mm-hmm. But she's also cited film directors David Lynch 
and Federico Fellini, and the painters Mark Ryden and Pablo Picasso as influences. I've always wanted to kind of do that with comedy, where I'm like, how can I take some of these other... These other mediums and kind of... Other mediums and be influenced by them and incorporate them into comedy. And it's tough. I mean, you don't need to purposely do it. Right, right. But... Like painting, I guess I liked Norman Rockwell growing up because Norman Rockwell would incorporate humor into his painting. So maybe I guess I guess it's in there. Maybe it's in there. You just got to dig in a little more, and you'll see it. You'll see it come out more. But yeah, no, that's interesting about Lana Del Rey because yeah, she does have this like slow tempo, like kind of like emo ish type of songs, and mm-hmm. uh, and then everyone else that you that you're talking about, like David Lynch, like it's very dark stuff. Mm-hmm. And her favorite films are The Godfather, Godfather Part Two, and American Beauty. And the Godfather movies especially are like slow builds and very like, I don't know how much I believe all that shit. Everyone says that Godfather is their favorite movie and shit. Why would she lie about her favorite films? I don't know. I, I, I every time anybody I'm not just her, I'm not talking about her, but I'm just saying when people tell me, especially when they're young, when they're like around my age and stuff like that. Yeah. When they come off telling me that fucking Godfather and uh, what's the other Citizen Kane and like that type of shit. In their defense, whoever these people are, <laughs> I've never heard anyone say Citizen Kane is their favorite film. I've seen it on lists yeah. as like the best film of all time, yeah. but I've I've never seen heard anyone say those words. Now, The Godfather definitely a lot of people and are it's like, great and it's yeah it's a beautiful film. But even I, I don't know, I can't say it's my favorite film. For me, as I've mentioned before, Forrest Gump is my all-time favorite film. It has weaned over time, but I guarantee if I watched it, sat down and watched it today, I'd be like, God, it still slaps, you know? It does. It will always forever slap. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, I like I like that she is influenced by other mediums. I think that's great. Yeah, no, it's and it's definitely interesting that it's like all this, you know, dark shit. Picasso, of course. Yeah, it's fucking dark-ass mopey shit. Should we go to... We could go to something maybe broader, like jazz. No, she wasn't jazz, though. Etta James? Yes, she was. I don't see a saxophone in her hand. That's how, I, <laughs> that's how I define jazz. <laughs> Is there a saxophone? Not jazz. Not jazz. <laughs> nope. I think, honestly, I like the Billie Holiday or... or I think um, we could get to Etta James pretty easily from one of these influences if we go... I feel like Nina Simone and Billie Holiday were contemporaries. Contempos. Gotta be. I feel like maybe Nina Simone was younger, whereas Billie Holiday influenced Etta James. I thought Billie Holiday was a dude, so let's do it. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, Billie Holiday, professionally known as Billie Holiday due to her giant dick, was an American jazz and swing music singer with a career spanning 26 years. That's where the swing came from, her swinging dick. (laughs) Oh, boy. And this is the problem when we talk about more women on the podcast. We make them men. Hey, I mean, I'll be honest. Billie Holiday's a swinging dick when it comes to music, so... Nicknamed Lady Day by her friend and music partner Lester Young, Holiday had an innovative influence on jazz music and pop singing. Her vocal style, strongly inspired by jazz instrumentalists, pioneered a new way of manipulating phrasing and tempo. 
She was known for her vocal delivery and improvisational skills. After a turbulent childhood, Holiday began singing in nightclubs in Harlem, where she was heard by producer John Hammond. Have you ever heard of John, John Hammond? No. He's produced Billie Holiday, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, like all these people over the years, probably like Chuck Berry. Just he's like, like the um, guy, what's, what's a producer? Jimmy Iovine. Yes, he's the Jimmy Iovine of his time. Gotcha. Okay. She signed a recording contract with Brunswick in 1935. Collaborations with Teddy Wilson yielded the hit What a Little Moonlight Can Do, which became a jazz standard. Throughout the 1930s and 1940s, Holiday had mainstream success on such labels as Columbia and Decca. By the late 1940s, however, she was beset with legal troubles and drug abuse. After a short prison sentence, she performed at a sold-out concert at Carnegie Hall, but her reputation deteriorated because of her drug and alcohol problems. How badass is that, though, to get out of prison and then sell Go out straight Carnegie to Hall? Carnegie? Yeah. I mean, a lot, I mean, all these, like, blues and jazz singers, I feel like, always had some sort of drug or alcohol problems i mean you, know. you could also just say musicians like yeah I, I mean yeah true behind the music growing up was always like rock stars addicted to cocaine yeah. or meth or, or psychedelics whatever yeah i don't know that you get addicted to psychedelics do you i think that you do oh holiday was inducted into the national rhythm and blues hall of fame was Eddie James Rhythm and Blues? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. Like, is there a Jazz Hall of Fame, too? Probably. Can, I bet Kenny G runs that. She Because <laughs> yeah. he has a saxophone, so you know it's jazz. Dude, he didn't have a saxophone. He had a... He had like Cla- a... Clarinet or something? It was like a clarinet sax mashup. Ooh. <laughs> Kenny G took a little bit of all jazz and made it the worst thing ever. <laughs> a saxonette. <laughs> She died at 44. We could go to death and legacy. Wow. Maybe legacy, that's part of it. Legacy, she, met, she must have influenced uh, Etta. Okay, death and legacy. By early 1959, Holiday was diagnosed with cirrhosis. Although she had initially stopped drinking on her doctor's orders, it was not long before she relapsed. By May 1959, she had lost 20 pounds. Her manager, Joe Glazer, jazz critic Leonard Feather, photojournalist... Leonard Feather? That's a dope name. Yeah, that's pretty solid. On May 31st, 1959, Holiday was taken to Metropolitan Hospital in New York for treatment of liver disease... Not lizard Lizard disease. disease? Liver disease. I have that. And heart disease. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics, under the order of Harry J... Ann Slinger had oh, been targeting Holiday since 1939. You know Henry Anslinger, right? No, I don't know who Harry Anslinger. That's my next topic. He's a huge piece of shit. Yeah. We don't want to get off on Harry Anslinger. I know that gets you off. But he was, real quickly, he was a United States government official who served as the first commissioner of the U.S. Treasury Department's Federal Bureau of Narcotics during the presidencies of Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy. He was a supporter of prohibition Mm -hmm. and the criminalization of drugs while spreading anti-drug policy campaigns. He held office for an unprecedented 32 years. He was basically, he's the reason why there's so many people in jail because of like minor drug 
charges, and a lot of it, okay. a lot of it is marijuana. When you get pinched um, with some marijuana on you, like I did, you kind of lo- yeah. you kind of dive into the history of like, why did I get fucked so much? You had a trunk full of marijuana, <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inside of the body that I was in the trunk. <laughs> yeah, there were a bunch of bodies that you sewed up because that's the best way to transport weed. <laughs> it, was either, it was either that or my butt, and my butt couldn't handle, you know, can handle so much. At the time, I wasn't doing the whole thirty diet. So, <laughs> God, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, narcotics, narcotics. <laughs> Had been targeting her since 1939, and this was 1959. She was arrested and handcuffed for drug possession when she went to the hospital. As she lay dying, her hospital room was raided, and she was placed under police guard. Jesus Christ. Yeah, no shit. On July 15th, she received the last rites of the Roman Catholic Church. She died at 3.10 a.m. on July 17th of pulmonary edema, and heart failure caused by cirrhosis of the liver. She was 44. In her final years, she had been progressively swindled out of her earnings, and she died with 70 cents in the bank. Jesus. And then the bank probably sent her a letter and said, uh, you owe $25 because you can't have less than a dollar <sighs> yeah. in the bank. God damn. I'm telling you, it's so fucked up. Henry Anslinger, like, specifically, like, targeted, like, jazz musicians and, like, Basically, black people. Oh, I didn't see Elvis get pinched. Did he have fucking stormtroopers at his bedside while he's dying? That's so insane. That's what I mean. So fucked. How like delusional are you? Where you're like, finally, we got her. She checked into the hospital. You're like you already know she's gonna die. I get. I, I, I'm all riled up now, Kyra. Uh, you don't sound that riled up. You you sound like kind of riled I'm, up, I'm but just, not I'm that just cause riled I've, up. I've, Cause I've just I've heard I've heard all this shit all too many times. What you got for me? Okay, Billie Holiday received several Esquire magazine awards during her lifetime. Her posthumous awards include being inducted to the Grammy Hall of Fame. I feel like Etta James won a Grammy. She, ha- of course, dude. Of course, she must have. Billie Holiday got inducted to the Jazz Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She has to be in the Rock and Roll, I because Rock and Roll covers like. Everything that's not rap. No, even rappers are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're just like, hey, whatever sells tickets. Let's uh, <laughs> let's just get some bodies in this building yeah. here. Well, we could go to list of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. Yeah, I went to list of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. inductees. I bet there's a lot of people from Malibu in here. Uh, Danny DeVito. <laughs> 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 what you said? People from Malibu, right? It's a broad, broad uh, Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, whatever sells tickets, you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, here we go. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, established in 1983 and located in Cleveland, Ohio, oof, is dedicated to recording the history of some of the best-known and most influential musicians, bands, producers, and others that have in some major way influenced the music industry, particularly in the area of rock and roll. Originally, there were four categories of induction, performers, non-performers, early influences, and lifetime achievement. In 2000, quote-unquote, sidemen 
was introduced into as a category. What is it called? Sidemen? Sidemen. Like me like the background singers or something? Or I don't know what Sidemen is. Um the only category that has seen new inductees every single year is the performers category. That makes sense. Artists become eligible for induction in that category 25 years after the release of their first record. Hmm. In order to be inducted, an artist must be nominated by a committee that selects a number of candidates, the highest being 16 for the 2020 class. Should we go to performers? Yeah. Here we go. Here's class number one. Ooh, first class. So Chuck Berry, James Brown, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Elvis Presley. That was year number one, 1986. That's a hell of that's, a class. Yeah that's, yeah, that's a good class, man. Holy shit. Really dropped off in year number two. No. <laughs> <laughs> year number two, the coasters, Eddie Cochran. I don't know who that is. Bo Diddley, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, Bill Haley, nice. B.B. King. I feel like we're edging it real hard. Oh, I mean, I can feel it. I can feel the edge. Here we go. How about the class of 1993? Wow, they were late. Let's check it out. My favorite class this week because it included Ruth Brown, Cream, Credence Clearwater Revival, The Doors, CCR, Fuck Frankie yeah. Lyman and the Teenagers, Van Morrison, Sly and the Family Stone, and Etta James. Hey, hey. Queen, hell yeah. No, Queen was inducted <laughs> in probably a little later. Right. That would be my guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we made it, Etta James. Hell yeah, the real queen, the real queen of, of jazz. Yo, I love her real name. Her real name is Jamesetta Hawkins. So she took Jamesetta, nice. switched it around, boom, Etta James. There you go. She was an American singer who performed in various genres. Here we go. We discussed. We were guessing some genres for her. Uh, <laughs> I knew soul was one of them. What else? Soul is not a genre. That comes from your heart. Soul oh, is much deeper. It's a power. She performed in various genres, including blues, R&B, soul. Oh, it is a genre. <laughs> Fucking fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll, jazz, and gospel. I didn't know you could really capture soul as a genre, but turns out you can. Yep, you can. Starting her career in 1954, she gained fame with such hits as The Wallflower, At Last, Tell Mama, Something's Got a Hold on Me, and I'd Rather Go Blind. That was my motto for masturbation. <laughs> uh, when a mom tells you masturbation will cause blindness... I'd say, screw it. In the words of Etta James, yeah. I'd rather go blind. You turn up you turn up the music and that's how you can masturbate. <laughs> turn on her song. God, that voice. I would masturbate to her voice too. I don't blame you. All right. Uh, much like Billie Holiday, she faced a number of personal problems, including heroin addiction, severe Jesus. physical abuse, and incarceration before making... A musical comeback in the late 1980s with the album Seven Year Itch. James's powerful, deep, earthy voice bridged the gap between rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Hmm. She won six Grammys and 17 Blues Music Awards. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1993, the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999, 
and the Blues Hall of Fame in 2001. Phew, it's good we didn't go to the R&B Hall of Fame. Because <laughs> oh, she's only in the B Hall of Fame, oh, you know? Shit. Not the R. Rolling Stone magazine ranked James number 22 on its list of the 100 greatest singers of all time. Hell yeah. She was also ranked number 62 on the list of 100 greatest artists of all time. So, what do you want to know about her, Jason? We got a long list here. We have childhood and early beginnings. We have Chess and Warner Brother years, which are the um, record labels. Uh, I would like to know more about her, like like later in life career, not the not the dark part. I think the hits came early. Uh, I know, like uh, the most, or when I was listening to a few of her songs, definitely the one that I think is the most recognizable is um, "At Last." Of course, yeah, yeah. Okay, I I didn't go right to her later years. Sorry, that's okay. Her debut album, "At Last," with an exclamation point was released in late 1960 and was noted for its varied selection of music from jazz standards to blues to doo-wop and rhythm and blues. The album included the future classic, I Just Want to Make Love to You. Thanks. And a Sunday kind of love. In early 1961, James released what was to become her signature song, At Last, which reached number two. Did it make number one? That's crazy. I bet you it got to number one when she passed or something. It reached number two on the R&B chart and number 47 on the Billboard Hot 100. Though the record was not as successful as expected, her rendition has become the best-known version of the song. So it wasn't her original song, Interesting. Maybe, maybe yeah, she was covering it. Let's see. It was a song written by Mac Gordon and Harry Ward- Warren, for the musical film Sun Valley Serenade, which was released in 1941. Hmm. Glenn Miller and his orchestra recorded the tune several times with a 1942 version reaching number two on the U.S. Billboard pop music chart. Man, that song just can't get over the hump. That's crazy. Even when you have such a powerful voice like Etta. Damn. All right, here's uh, 1982 to 2012, her later career. I think she died in 2012. James continued to perform on occasion in the early 1980s, including two guest appearances at Grateful Dead concerts hmm. in December 1982. What a cool walk-on yeah. at a Grateful Dead concert. Talk about those people getting tripped out. Holy shit. Very addictive drugs. Yeah, imagine being on Mushrooms. You're there to see the Grateful Dead, and then you see like this fucking legend just come in. In 1984, she contacted David Walper and asked to perform in the opening ceremony of the 1984 Summer Olympics, at which she sang When the Saints Go Marching In. In 1989, she signed with Island Records and released the albums Seven Year Itch and Stickin' to My Guns, both of which were produced by Barry Beckett and recorded at Fame Studios. James participated with the rap singer Def Jeff, on the song Dropping Rhymes on Drums, which mixed James's jazz vocals with hip-hop. Huh, I haven't heard of that. In 1992, she recorded the album The Right Time, produced by Jerry Wexler for Elektra Records. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1993. Nice. 
By the mid-1990s, James's earlier classic music was being used in commercials, including I Just Want to Make Love to You, after an excerpt of the song was featured in a Diet Coke advertising campaign in the UK. It reached the top 10 on the UK charts in 1996. How wild is that? She releases something in like 1961 or 62, and then it reaches top 10 on the charts in 1996. That's kind of fun. Oh, man, she took some shots at Beyonce, it sounds like. In 2008, James was portrayed by Beyonce Knowles in the film Cadillac Records, a fictional account of Chess Records, James's label for 18 years, and how label founder and producer Leonard Chess helped the careers of James and others. The film portrayed her pop hit at last. James later said that her previous critical remarks about Knowles for having performed at last at the inauguration of Barack Obama were a joke, stemming from how she felt hurt that she herself was not invited to sing her song. That's true. It was later reported that Alzheimer's disease and drug-induced dementia had contributed to her negative comments about Knowles. But maybe she felt that yeah. way. I mean, that's a legit feeling. Yeah, I would totally feel fucking gypped if like, I'm still alive, the voice is still there. I mean, for the most part, I hope. I'm still alive. If Glenn Miller and his orchestra aren't available, get me. Yeah. Now I'm. Uh, now now I'm. I don't want to talk shit about Beyonce because now the be- no, the no, beehive. No, we don't want the beehive. Yep. Coming We're gonna up. get stung. Oh, maybe we can. Maybe we can use the Streisand effect here. We can do like reverse psychology yeah. on the Streisand effect. Yeah. I don't want any attention coming from yeah. the beehive. Yeah. Beyonce sucks. Yeah. <laughs> the only other thing that I know about um, um, Etta James is that her funeral, there's like a few, there's a few people that performed, and one of them, aside from yeah. Christina Aguilera, was Beyonce. Mm, okay, so maybe they buried the hatchet. No, I think at Beyonce last. was being super disrespectful and says, you know, like, <laughs> look at me now, bitch. When did she die? 2011, something like that, right? 2012, I believe. Um, Here's her style and influence. Uh, She possessed the vocal range of... Oh, boy. Sign it out, Kyle. James possessed the vocal range of... Kronchowski? Contralto. Contralto, pronounced contralto, (laughs) is a type of classical female singing voice whose vocal range is the lowest female voice type. Okay. Mm. So she was a contralto. Her musical style changed during the course of her career. At the beginning of her recording career in the mid-1950s, James was marketed as an R&B and doo-wop singer. After signing with Chess Records in 1960, she broke through as a traditional pop-styled singer covering jazz and pop music standards on her debut album At Last. Her voice deepened and coarsened, moving her musical style in her later years into the genres of soul and jazz. So she Mm. got more soulful over time. Like a fine wine. James has influenced a wide variety of musicians, including Diana Ross, Christina Aguilera, Janis Joplin, Brandy, Bonnie Raitt, uh, and then some lesser-known people, as well as British artists, the Rolling Stones, Adele, Legal difficulties and drug addiction? By the mid-1960s, she was addicted to heroin. She bounced checks, forged prescriptions, and stole from her friends to finance her addiction. 
James was arrested in 1966 for writing bad checks, placed on probation, and ordered to pay a $500 fine, uh, 10 days in prison, blah, blah, blah. String of drug and legal problems in the 1970s. God, a heroin addiction. That's like, that's a tough drug to have a career and get addicted to. Anyway, she bounced back, thankfully, and had a resurgence in the late 1980s and 90s. She died on January 20th, 2012, five days before her 74th birthday at Riverside Community Hospital in Riverside, California. Her death came three days after that of Johnny Otis, the man who had discovered her in the 1950s. 36 days after her death, her side man, Red Holloway, died. Always in three. Her funeral was presided over by Reverend Al Sharpton and took place in Gardenia, California, eight days after her death. Stevie Wonder, Beyonce, and Christina Aguilera each gave a musical tribute. Hey, that's good that they did bury the hatchet. She was buried. With the hatchet. With the hatchet. She was buried with the hatchet at Inglewood Cemetery, Park Cemetery in Los Angeles County, California. Always up to no good. All right, so that's Etta James. We did it. We got from Silent Spring to Etta James. Hey, that's good. Uh, you know, no birds chirping and uh, musicians. And then a beautiful that's singing nice... voice. Yeah. I'm going to dig into some more of her songs because obviously she's legendary. One of the best ever. I think that does it for this episode of WikiU. As always, music for the podcast was provided by Davey and the Chains, and you can check them out on Spotify. Uh, you can check out my other podcast, The Roamers Book Club, on Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. And I am on Instagram at Kyle Berseth. And also, you got to follow Wiki University on Instagram Whoa. at Wiki University. Yeah, we're going to start posting some additional content on there until we get tired of it. What do you got cooking, Jason? You got a new podcast. I got cooking a lot, baby. Well, first off, you can find me on Instagram at Laftinas. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Nunez. And you can please, please check out uh, my podcast. Uh, Lewis Hamilton is dope as fuck and you are not. It's everything F1 motorsports entertainment and culture is with my good buddy Lafayette Wright, a co-worker of ours. And uh, you can catch him at, at Lafayette 24 7. Very funny comedian. But follow the, our podcast Instagram at dopeaf44pod. Dopeaf44pod. And check us out on Spotify and iTunes. And uh, yeah, please leave a review and five stars. You don't have to listen to it, just leave the reviews. <laughs> just, it's super. Just say, it's, I love these yeah. guys. Five stars. <laughs> Exactly. Well, um, that does it for the show. Thanks for listening. Signing off. Ooh. That's milky. And beans.